people making Star Wars, including George and his team, they knew about me. So when it came time to look for who was going to play Luke Skywalker, they auditioned everybody. He was in the chair, and once I got into the room and got in front of him, he turned around and he said, Commander Baylock, Corbin might maneuver. The last thing I wanted to hear as a 16 or 17 year old young man trying to get an adult job was a reference to something I did when I was a baby. Hi, I'm Clint Howard, and I was in the original Star Trek series. I was also in Deep Space Nine. I was also in uh, Enterprise. Oh, yeah. I was also in Discovery, and there's other ones that I'm I'm missing, but I've been in a lot of them, and you're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. And welcome to the start of the fourth season of Trek Untold. Anyone who's a regular here at this show knows I like to do something big and special for my season premieres. And today, we've got a guest unlike any other in the Star Trek universe or beyond. Joining us for this premiere is one of the most prolific character actors of all time, Clint Howard. When I first started the show, this was a guy that's on the top of that list I've talked about so many times, and yeah, we finally got to him today. Aside from a resume that spans decades, starting when he was still in single digits of age, Clint is now officially the only actor to have appeared in every era of Star Trek. One of his first Hollywood roles was as Commander Baylock in the TOS episode The Corbomite Maneuver from Season 1. Clint returned three decades later to the franchise in Star Trek DS9's famous two-parter, Past Tense, where he played a bum named Grady who helps Dax and Bashir in the second part. A few years later, Clint showed up again, this time in Star Trek Enterprise as the Ferengi named Muke from that really great first season Ferengi episode titled Acquisition. Nearly another 20 years went by, and lo and behold, Clint makes a sneaky cameo in the season one finale of Star Trek Discovery, Will You Take My Hand? Here, Clint played that creepy Orion who was seemingly just named Creepy Orion, and well, frankly, his role was that he was a creep to Tilly. Fast forward one more time to 2023, and Clint has returned again, most recently playing Buck Martinez in the second season Strange New Worlds episode, Under the Cloak of War. That's five roles in Star Trek that literally started when he was a child, probably still with his baby teeth still falling out of his head, all the way up to modern times in the newest series. Try and name another Star Trek actor who's done that. I dare you right now to figure that out. We've had some on this show, in fact, who've done a lot of Trek throughout the decades, but Clint Howard is one from the OG series to today, and that's pretty wild. And FYI, while editing this episode and rewatching it, I totally didn't realize Clint straight up trolled me. He told me, without telling me in this interview, he was going to be in Strange New Worlds, and I didn't even realize that. So, proof that Clint Howard might be the greatest actor that's ever walked this green earth. Clint and his brother Ron recently penned a dual autobiography titled The Boys, a memoir of Hollywood and family. 
This New York Times bestseller chronicles this prolific pair from their start in the industry, the trials and tribulations, or sorry, excuse me, tribulations, as they grew up in Hollywood, and the events that brought them to where they are today in their personal and professional lives. It's an absolutely wonderful read that I really recommend, and we're going to discuss some of what's in that book today, along with a small sampling of some of Clint's other 250 roles that weren't Star Trek. Now, one quick note, this interview was recorded before the current strike that's going on in Hollywood right now, so if you're not up to date on what's happening with that, check out my previous episode all about it, where I had former guests on this show like Armin Shimmerman, Katie Swink, Phil Morris, Lisa Klink, Bertilla Damas, and Tim Lunabus giving us an insider's peek at why everybody's striking, what they're fighting for, and what we can do to help them out. Clint's Strange New World appearance happened during the strike, so unfortunately, we weren't able to talk about it in this one. Hopefully, once things are resolved, we can try to get him back for a second time to fill in those blanks about a Strange New World's appearance. So, hey, the good news is there's always more coming from Clint Howard. Clint's a man that's done it all, and he's not planning on stopping anytime soon. And he's also an actor that's done a ton of interviews over the years. But I can make you the Trek Untold guarantee, and that's I always find something new for my guests to chat about, and we definitely did that here. I think even Clint was kind of surprised about where we went in this one. So get ready for a chat with one of the most down-to-earth actors whose face you've seen time and time again in so many shows and films. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary pals, the one and only Clint Howard. But before we get into this week's episode, I have to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media yet? You can find us over on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, all at Trek Untold, one word with no spaces. You can also become a Patreon supporter for this podcast over at patreon.com slash trekuntold. Here, you can directly contribute to keeping this show running at full power for as low as a few bucks a month. If you do this, you'll have early access to new episodes, the ability to ask future guests questions, check out exclusive merchandise, and other special benefits. We've also got an official merch store and an Amazon store filled with Star Trek goodies. So if you want to rock a Trek Untold t-shirt to the next con you're going to, or order something Star Trek related for yourself or someone else, please use the links in the show notes to help us help you. Shout out to our show sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, makers of fine 3D printed Star Trek inspired toys and accessories for collectors of all kinds. But you'll hear more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. So on this podcast, I talk to a lot of character actors, and I introduce many of them when they first pop in as you know their face, but not their name. But for today's guest, your name, your face, one of the most recognizable in Hollywood. So Mr. Clint Howard, welcome to Trek Untold. It's an honor to spend some time with you today. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. It was a wonderful introduction. And, you know, it's uh, God, it's, it's great. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, we're here today to talk Trek. We're going to talk about some other things. But one of the big things I want to talk about right at the start of this interview here uh, is that you have a new memoirs that you and your brother Ron wrote called The Boys, which uh, it's a window into your journey as child stars all the way through adulthood and the struggles along the way. Uh, great book. I read the whole thing before we did this interview. And I got to ask you, Clint, you know, for folks who don't know, why is it called The Boys? Well, um, listen, the, the, Ron and I concocted the idea of doing a book after dad had passed away. And, you know, mom died years before dad passed. And it was sort of a love letter to them. We really wanted to try to express our gratitude and express from our points of view exactly what an amazing set of parents we had. Uh, Rance Howard and Gene Howard, 
And the reason why the book is called The Boys is that's what mom used to refer to all three of us. Very male-oriented household. We didn't have any sisters. It was just me and Ron and and dad. And I was very rambunctious, um, not in a negative way, but you know, I had a lot of energy and 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 dad had a lot of energy and we'd wrestle and we carried on. And you know, mom would always refer to us as the boys. And so listen, here is here is a cop the book, you know, that's a copy of it. And it's out. It's it, Harper Collins. God, proud to say I'm a New York Times bestseller. It was on yes, the New congratulations. York bestseller list. Thank you for a month. Uh, it's now out on paperback. You can still get it at all the major retailers. And it is a good read. Thank you. Uh, we're, Ron and I are very proud of it. It also is a great audiobook because, you know, the way Ron and I decided to, to craft the book was make it a, a dual narrative. Yeah. Ron shares his point of view and his perspective about being a child actor. And he was the first in the pipeline. And I came along five years later. And uh, and my have a perspective and my perspective is sometimes quite a bit different. I mean, we, you know, Ron and I are brothers and we love each other, but we are different. And so we we freely express ourselves. And in the audio book, um, he reads his and I read mine. And it makes for a very interesting, entertaining read. Uh, listen. Yeah, I really enjoy that ping pong storytelling in the book uh, between you and your brother. And it kind of made me curious to find out, how did you guys actually write the book? I mean, were you guys kind of like having a dialogue together? Do you each just take turns? Because it is it is very much like a conversation. Well, you know, Ron and I, Ron and I, uh, we attacked the project of writing the boys a little bit like, you know, developing a film. What are the best stories? What stories are people going to be attracted to? And what stories do we feel impassioned to tell? And where where my point of view and Ron's point of view differ or the interesting perspective, you got to remember when he was 10, I was five. When he was 14, I was nine. He was going through, he he went through puberty long before I did, you know? And uh, and so so, you know, we had a different perspective on things and we just felt like, that when, we, well, when we started talking to publishers, that's what they landed on. And listen, it you know it was a, it is a business. We we went and we went around. We we developed the idea of the book, and then we went to different publishers to see who would be interested and what they liked about it. So we got feedback. You know, we also got wonderful help from a writer named David Camp. David Camp was part of our kind of team, and he. he He's a, a, a Vanity Fair writer. He also is a novelist. And um, and he really got it. He got what Ron and I were trying to do. And so he sort of was a preliminary editor. Ron would write. I would write. And then David would read it and and then point us towards making a deeper dive, as he used to say. And also... Ron and I both knew and we got encouragement from the HarperCollins people and from David Camp is that let's describe what was it really like? Let's make these things like scenes. Yeah. What was it like to be in Jackson Hole, Wyoming that year? And, you know, the details. And 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 so it's not just us telling the broad stroke stories, but we're interested in 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 what were the little nuanced details that we remembered at those various ages. So you know, that was it. 
you know, and then of course we got down to the fourth quarter and the actual editor from HarperCollins came into the picture. And my goodness, I, you know, I wasn't giving the literary world that much credit. I thought, you know, okay, you know, book the deal. Let's go. Let it back, back away. We're going to write it. But we got some great, our, 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 our editor was a guy named Morrow and he made the book 25% better with his notes in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. I was really impressed. I thought, God, he did, you know, David Camp helped us and Morrow helped us. And, and, you know, again, Ron and I, I'm really, really proud, really proud of the way it turned out. And we're really happy that we now have this memoir um, that we can share that includes this very unique, extraordinary life being child actress. Listen, I started acting when I was two years old. I've been a professional for almost 62 years now. Which is crazy to think about. It is. Yeah. You know, it's a wonderful time capsule, just not just for the Howard family, but also for Hollywood itself and seeing you know what it's like back then to where it is now. It's such a different kind of experience. Uh, I, do, I do want to touch on one of the things that's in the book, though. And uh, I think that you talked about this on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast some time ago. Um, and that's you and your brother never really talked shop growing up. And I'm just wondering, how did you guys not do that? I mean, you're both in the business. How did you not ever communicate about that kind of thing? Well, I don't really know why, <laughs> but but. Yeah, uh, I tell you what, we did talk a little shop as we got older, and Ron was started to get interested interested in making films. When Ron was interested in making films, I remember us talking about movies and talking about how the tricks were done. Mm-hmm. Famously, Ron made a blood and guts little sh- video called "Guns, Gads." Guns, guts, and gore, or something like that, and it was basically a card game that ends up everybody gets killed. Uh, and it was a you know three four minute short film. Sam Peck and Paul had made the Wild Bunch, and Ron and I were really fascinated by the way they did the blood, the guts, the the the, the blood spray, and 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 so we we tried to recreate that. But as kids, listen, I enjoyed being on the set. I understood that you know we were doing something that was both a, you know we were making money at it, and it was fun. But when we got home, it was about the Dodgers or the Lakers or, you know, whatever we were doing in school or it's just, you know, listen, Ron and I have had adult conversations about this and it is kind of amazing. Like Ron never ran lines with me. Yeah. He just never did. And it's, well, dad was there. I mean, mom and dad, God bless them, Rance and Gene Howard, they did this. They were awesome parents. They, they, they were leaders. They, they led with love. Uh, dad, dad's story, which is why people should read the book. I mean, dad's story was so amazing because he was a farm boy. He was a farm boy from Oklahoma. He wasn't raised particularly well, you know, and then he has this dream of, of being in the entertainment business and he goes about this dream and he has a little bit of luck and then he has these two kids and they 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 come out to California and you know Ron shows a remarkable talent he gets up ends up on the Andy Griffith show and that's pretty heady stuff you know my dad was 30 years old and listen we we lovingly called him a sophisticated hick 
which is which is a term that mom gave him because my dad in a lot of ways was kind of hickish but he had this great sensibility and he wasn't intimidated by anybody and when dad got into that heady kind of company where he was around successful hollywood people he just you know he didn't back down he he wouldn't let anybody intimidate him and he didn't do it with i'm going to kick your ass he did it with just such dignity and such strength that my god everybody everybody you know so respected my dad and my mom too so you know we were I, we were Ron and I were really in a sweet spot yeah you know the book it's very uplifting it's very heartfelt it's funny at times but it's also brutally honest and i mean the book does go into a little bit about some of your struggles with dependency um which i never really knew about honestly so you know it was interesting reading about that and hearing how you worked through that um, you know, for you now, this book is a little bit more, I guess, in depth for yourself. So was it difficult having to look back in the past and kind of have to dig up some of these tough topics? You know, not at all, Matthew. Listen, I, you know, um, first of all, you know, you obviously never heard me speak at a meeting. You know, I've been in recovery for a long time. And, you know, I, I, I cherish the anonymity of all 12 step groups. And I'm going to be very careful as I as I go through this. But, you know, I freely and openly shared about my story uh, at at dozens and dozens of speaker meetings in various 12 step groups. So, you know, it wasn't new to me. I figured I had been through hell and and. You know, the best thing to do was to share, because at the end of the day, my God, if if something I say might keep somebody from frigging stepping off the cliff and landing in hell. It, you know, kind of makes us all, it always made me feel better. It always made me feel better. Just, you know, and also the truth will set you free. You know, one thing I learned in my whole recovery deal was, you know, telling little lies ends up just, you know, catching up with you because a little lie then rolls into a big lie into a big lie then finally you got this big giant lie that you're living in and you're just going to f yourself up so anyway no the answer to you know um talking about you know i listen i i started i smoked weed when i was you know 13 or 14 years old and 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 started drinking and immediately drank you know drank out of the bottle by the bottle you know i for whatever reason, whether it was genetics or a combination of things, I just got bit with the bug of alcoholism. And, you know, it, it, yeah, as a young kid, shoot, you know, it was 16, 17, 18 years old. Um, like a lot of kids, listen, like a lot of kids. So anyway, I'm grateful that, you know, mom and dad gave me a lot of guidance. I got a lot of guidance from a lot of great men in recovery. And, uh, you know, here I am today, 64 years old, alive and ticking. Yeah, well, congratulations on your continued sobriety. And you got a great perspective on it, too, just being able to, you know, share your stories and give it forward, you know, make sure that someone else who's in that hole can get themselves out of it. So thank you for being open to doing that. Oh, too. yeah. Yeah, no, listen, I, you know, um, yeah, my, my, and, and this, and my part of this, my part of the boys, when I was in my teenage years, you know, we didn't aim it to be all of a sudden some sort of tell all or some sort of. Of, you know the, the you know it was just you know, my recoveries my recovery stories um you know they they they're a part of me until i was what 31 years old 
you know, so listen, I, I skidded along bedrock for a long time. Well, you made it. And uh, for folks who want to read more about the book, check out the boys. We're going to have links in my show notes for how you can pick that oh, book cool. up. And there it One is. Clint's got his hand right now. <laughs> There's the boys, a memoir of Hollywood and family. Now I can say the full title because I'm looking right at it. <laughs> so yeah, thank you, Clint. And uh, you know, Obviously, I want to talk a whole lot more about tons of other things in your career because your career is so massive. But this is a Star Trek show, so you got to start digging into the Trek. And it's funny because really Star Trek is one of the earliest things on your resume because your very first appearance in Star Trek is the very first season. Uh, and that's I believe it's like the second episode of the first uh, the first full season, which is the Corbomite maneuver. Uh, you played Commander Baylock. It's a really fun episode. Uh, can you just kind of tell us the story from the beginning of how you booked the gig? Oh, boy. Uh, how I booked the gig. Well, first of all, I wasn't a newcomer at all. You have to realize that by 1965, 1966, I had been acting professionally for four or five years. Yeah, you've been on the end of show a few times also, right, by then? I did a, I did a, a couple episodes of The Fugitive. Um, I did a wonderful episode of a Bonanza called All Ye His Saints, and it was a Christmas episode, and it was the first season they did – when they went color and when Pernell Roberts left, start left, left um, the Ponderosa. So I was, did this episode. It was written by a great writer named Bill Blinn who wrote, um, Oh, what was the, the, the football movie? Um, Brian song, William Blinn, Bill Blinn wrote that. Well, he wrote as a very young man, he wrote an episode of Bonanza called All Ye His Saints. And I was the lead of that episode and I couldn't have been more than five years old. Wow. So, you know, with the help of my dad kind of t- tutoring me and, 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 and I wouldn't even say he was teaching or coaching. It was just, he was like a child actor whisperer. My dad had this wonderful ability to boil down what a person needs to do as an actor to prepare. And it was so simple. And and I learned it. And, you know, I, I learned a lot of it by osmosis because I watched my brother do it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, you know, I, but okay, I auditioned and I remember auditioning for Star Trek. And I, because I remember we, audi- we, we practiced outside and dad had read the script and knew there was going to be a lot of razzmatazz and, and, you know, I was going to be in a, I was going to be in a kind of a silly costume and I was playing this in 600 year old. I was a 600 year old alien commander. And, you know, I prepared the material. They told me originally, they told dad and I originally that they were going to run my voice through a synthesizer Mm. and that's how they were going to alter my voice. And so, okay, well, I needed to learn the dialogue, of course. And as it turns out, they didn't use a synthesizer. They found a wonderful, a wonderful voice actor who did my voice. And, yeah. you know, give, give, I, I, I'm brainlocking on the fellow's name now. It's easily retrievable. The man who, who did my voice was absolutely phenomenal. And you can never give, I can never give enough credit to him because, you know, he gave the character that kind of adult vibe that there was no way I was going to do it. And also another thing too, this, I mean, I mentioned this a lot, you know, they asked my dad if I might be willing to shave my head bald. Because they had seen seen Baylock as being a, you know, a shaved head. And that was a non-starter for me. You know, I was in the second grade and I was not going to go to my second grade class with a shaved head. I was not going (laughs) to, that was a humiliation beyond humiliations. So, 
you know, we, I remember, I remember this and I went in, um, to do the, a test for the bald cap and that went really well. You know, I love the smell of spirit gum, you know, the chemicals they used. Uh, I really enjoyed that. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so, so we did the test and then, you know, well, first of all, I did, obviously I got the audition. I auditioned for it and, you know, listen, I had the chops, obviously. So they booked me and then we prepared. My dad was always big on preparation. I mean, I was always the most prepared actor there on the set, even as a little guy, you know, I, and, and there were times in my career when as a child that I would look at a, these other adults fumbling for their dialogue and I'd wonder, well, what's wrong with them? Why can't they get it? Why don't they practice? You know, why, why don't they do a better job? This guy's pretty stiff. <laughs> you know, and I remember saying that as a, as a young boy, and I'm a little embarrassed because, you know, my acting chops were not awesome, but I, for a kid, I was good. So anyway, so it comes time to do the show. And it was a day's work. And I do have, I do have some, some faint memories. One memory I do remember is they brought me to the set. They brought me, they showed me where I was going to do my scene because they, they were filming, the, the crew was filming on another side of the soundstage. Um, and so I didn't meet anybody. I was there on my set. And then all of a sudden I heard the two bells that signified they had cut, you know, what in, in show business on sound stages, when they roll camera, they do a bell. And then when they cut camera, they do two bells. And I'll never forget, Matthew, I heard the two bells. And then I felt and saw the crew and some of the cast members start walking towards my set. And it I remember feeling pretty good, like, okay, this is, I'm getting ready to go to work here. You know, enough with the standing around. And we started doing the stuff. Um, and you know, the rehearsal, everything was going good. Uh, the prop man then poured the tronium and I saw right away that it was pink grapefruit juice out of a tin can, which there ain't no way, no way I'm taking a swig of warm pink grapefruit juice out of a tin can. It just, come on, dad. Why couldn't they put, you know, apple <laughs> juice or grape juice or any, you're not Great, not grapefruit juice. Dad, that's the secret. It was grapefruit Dad juice. Dad had the prop man pour him a big water glass of it, and my dad in front of me drank that down. He went, <clears throat> "It's good, Clint. You're gonna you're, you're gonna drink that pink grapefruit juice, and you're gonna like it. And if you see the show, and I did, I did, didn't kill me." Uh, did taste very good. And as you can tell on the show, I had such an aversion to it. When I take a sip of it, when I take a sip of the Tranya, I barely put it to my lips. I mean, just like a fellow drinking some sort of exotic space liquor, you know, just a little dabble do you that Tranya. And, uh, you know, had a good time, had a good time. Um, um, you know, cut print, check the gate. Thank you. You know, it's a wrap on little Clint Howard. And I went home. Didn't think much of it. It was a fun experience. Oh, the one more thing I'll add is the little costume that they had me in was itchy and 
Oh man, I remember the boot. I was curious. The boots about that, were yeah. too tight, and you know, it was like a kind of a a sequins material, but it had no lining. It looked a little rough for sure for you, just as a viewer. It looked pretty it was hard itchy to wear and stuff. And the little crown, it was like they measured my head before they put the skull cap on me. So it was like it fit when I was just, you know, normal. And then when I put the skull cap on and they added, you know, a little bit around my head, the thing was tight. So it was not the most comfortable outfit that I've ever acted in, you know? And then when it came out, it was fun. I, you know, God being in a space thing, science fiction, but I, I gave, I did not give it a second thought. I had no clue at all that, you know, over 50 years, Years later, 55 years later, that people would, would, you know, honor my work at that level. You know, I've got, I have a couple of further stories about that. And, you know, one thing, Matthew, it took me a long time to really appreciate any of the work I did as a child. In in this perspective, in this, you know, when I became an adult, I wanted to make my mark as an adult. My child career was my childhood career. And I would just assume that people not discuss it. Listen, you know, I was in a TV series with a bear for crying out loud, which isn't a which, which isn't a very, very adult thing. You know, I mean, I think it's pretty cool. Well, personally. yeah, no way. Now, listen, I have <laughs> my attitude has changed. Almost 180 degrees. In fact, it has changed in 180 degrees because, you know, I recognized, you know, and it was, I was probably in my mid forties when I recognized this, that my work as a child was, was, was amazing. And the fact that, you know, almost everybody in America grew up watching me, you know, which it's not. You know, I'm not throwing my shoulder out, patting myself on the back. It's just a fact that it's 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 a legacy that that is is good. It's a good legacy. And so, you know, but early on in my career, I just would just as soon not have people talk about me pulling on a bear's chain or not have people talking about me as a little baby in Star Trek. You know, uh, um, now it, I'll, this is a story that I've told before, but I'm going to tell you. Um, you know, I auditioned for Star Wars, the original Star Wars in 1975 or 1976. I was 16, 17 years old. And, you know, my brother Ron had worked with George Lucas on on um, uh, American Graffiti. So so the, the people making Star Wars, including George and his team, they knew about me. So when it came time to look for so who was going to play Luke Skywalker, they auditioned everybody. I mean, this is way before there was videotape auditions. So they were literally having everybody come to Fox Studios and they were auditioning. They must have auditioned hundreds of people. When I was there at the Fox Studio lot, there had to have been 40 or 50 guys standing around and, you know, just almost like a cattle call. It wasn't a pure cattle call, but they, because, you know, but we had auditions and, and we were sort of selected. But I remember seeing Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill was behind me. I was in front and I was, you know, and it was good. I I had auditioned with Mark Hamill a couple of times on various projects. You know, listen, we, you know, as kids, we auditioned a lot. Um, 
And so anyway, it came time for them to call my name. And and I went in and I walk into the room and it was a beautiful room at, at 20th Century Fox. And I look over and Francis Ford Coppola is sitting in a chair right there. And Jesus, Francis just takes up a room. Francis owns a room. I've had an opportunity to, to spend time with him. And he's just friggin' he's a beautiful dude. And he just, you know, he's magnetic. And so anyway, I look at him and I'm, wow, Francis is here. And then I look over and I see Fred Roos. Fred Roos had been a casting director on The Andy Griffith Show. And Fred Roos was a colleague of of George and and Francis. Uh, got another guy named Geno Havens was in the room who I knew. He worked on American Graffiti. So I knew him and he was a guy, his one leg was longer than the other. And he kind of had a funny way of walking. And so he was a memorable character, but I didn't see George. George was, was, he was in a big leather chair. George is not a very big man. And he was in a big leather chair and his whole body was obscured by this chair. And it was like this. He, he was in the chair. And once I got into the room and got in front of him, he turned around and he said, Commander Baylock. Corbin might maneuver. And and my next thought, Matthew, was George, I didn't say it, George, get a friggin' life. Because the last thing I wanted to hear as a 16 or 17-year-old young man trying to get an adult job was a reference to something I did when I was a baby. It just, you know, I now I'd have a different perspective on it. But back then, Anyway, I obviously didn't get the role. Mark Hamill got it. Mark was a wonderful Luke Skywalker. Friggin' he nailed it. George nailed it. You know, it's a friggin' piece of movie history that will never, ever, ever be topped. And so that was my moment of of getting faced with, well, I worked as a little kid and it's coming back to haunt me at the time. I mean, that, 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 that was my thinking. I was wrong. I, you know, George Lucas was honoring me. I left a, I left a memory in George Lucas's mind that was powerful, powerful enough for him to bring it up, you know, in a good way. So anyway, you know, that was my, was me making, you know, kind of a mental mistake when I was 16 or 17 years old. And, um, I, again, I started accepting it. You know, I go to Star Trek conventions and I go to horror yeah. conventions. Um, and, you know, just over time, just sort of a, you know, I, I kind of had an awakening by, by, by an educational variety. I just came to realize these people, you know, I mean something to these people. I've left an impression on these people with my work and my circumstance that is positive. And God, if I don't celebrate that, I'm an a hole. So I do celebrate it. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D-printed Star Trek and sci-fi-inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Mego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products 
products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay-what-you-want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG. And now, Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row, and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein, and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. I mean, I got to tell you, Clint, I'm really, you know, tangentially related to this interview. The first time I remember really... Uh seeing much about you or hearing much about you was in fact on Gilbert Gottfried's podcast. And since that day, I think that was one of the things that sort of did start to inspire me to work on this very podcast, hearing your stories about Trek and hearing your stories about the business all the way back then. So I'm happy you've embraced it and you've embraced that lifestyle. Uh, and I've just been like so fan friendly because that's, that's an amazing thing to offer to us. Well, listen, it, you know, if I can make somebody's life a little happier, as long as they don't invade as long as they don't do something that's, you know, either, you know, just just alcohol in, induced. I don't want to just always blame alcohol, but most of the time, if I have a bad, if I have a bad encounter with a fan, usually it has something to do with freaking somebody being too liquored up, you yep. know. Um, and and you know that's okay too. I mean, but it's just listen. I you know, people need to realize fans, people that recognize me re- need to realize that you know I. I have I have a space. I have a space that if you invade it, it's it's not a good thing. And especially with my wife and my daughter, you know, I I certainly, you know, people need to I think and 99.9% of the people are completely respectful. You know, maybe the percentage isn't quite that high, but it is it's very high. You know, and 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 God bless them. I mean, Jesus, you know, if I saw if I saw a famous 
baseball player. Like if I had a chance to meet Jim Palmer, I was a huge Baltimore Orioles fan when I was a kid, you know, I mean, Jim Palmer, I, you know, would completely geek out or a professional golfer, Lee Trevino or Tiger Woods. I would absolutely geek out. My God, I'm talking to Lee Trevino. You know, so anyway, that, you know, I, I, I've, I've certainly had a rearrangement of my attitude in terms of the fans. Oh, that's awesome. Cause you are a seriously deep part of the history, not just on the TV shows, but you know, for me, Clint, I am a giant super Star Trek nerd. And I'm also, that means a giant super Star Trek collector. And I've been waiting to ask you this for, I think the longest time now you have an action figure of yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's two pack with your puppet. Uh, what do you think about that figure? Does it look like you? Are you happy with it? Oh, yeah, it's tickled. Can I break away for a moment? Yeah, sure. Okay, hold on. You know, Matthew, I've had a hobby for a long time, starting in 2015. And and I make snow globes. I never knew that. Fact, this is the <laughs> first snow globe that I made. And <laughs> that, that is so cool. That right there, that's that's Baylock and the puppet. And those they came right out of the box. It came right out of the box. And I found something really magical about snow globes. And uh, I, I've actually made a couple of Bay. I made one solo of Baylock. This, but this was my very first snow globe that I made in 2015. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah, That's pretty- an awesome job, by the way. That's so cool. Yeah. Thank you. It was, it was fun to do. I don't know. I, at the time in my life, because of my hips, I had to quit playing golf. And I had been such an avid golfer that I really needed to have something to do. And I literally kind of was thinking, well, what do I do? I either, I I either do dioramas, you know, I could try to paint, but I'm really not that good of a painter. I'm good artist, but in terms of my limitations with my painting skills and for whatever reason, I really didn't want to like, you know, spend a lot of time trying to learn how to paint or learn oil or whatever. So I thought, what can I do? And I don't know how it happened. I saw it on the internet. These this outfit was selling these do-it-yourself snow globe kits. And I decided to take a whack at it. And I ended up I the, the 21. I've done 21 snow globes. And the fellow that was selling me the kits, this is had this was several years ago. The fellow that was selling me the kits when I bought like my 23rd snow globe kit, he said, you know, I just want to tell you something, Clint. Nobody's ever bought more than two. <laughs> so cool. it's called an obsession i guess you know <laughs> everybody's got one i got star trek you got snow globes it's all good no there you go here. there you go so uh, let's jump now ahead a few decades later in your star trek time and again i feel like we're glossing over so much of your other career here but that's what the book is for so folks read the boys but uh let's jump ahead now to your next star trek appearance that's in deep space nine it's the second part of one of their most, really one of the most important DS9 episodes of all time. One of the most iconic ones, uh, Past Tense. Uh, in that one, you play a vagrant named Grady. And uh, I wanted to ask here, you know, is this a role that you had auditioned for? Or had you auditioned for Star Trek again since? And I should start first with, um, had you previously auditioned for Trek since you did the original series? And um, were the producers aware that you had been in the original Trek when you auditioned for DS9? Well, actually, I don't know. I could go no, no, and no, or I'll, I'll tell you about it. Um, I had done the original Star Trek, and years had passed, you know, and I had become an adult. And then Next Generation happened, 
and Star Trek happened. I mean, uh, Deep Space Nine happened. And my agents at the time were aware of a rule that the Star Trek shows had, and that was they were not going to use anybody from the original series. That at that time, that was just sort of a rule. They didn't want to cross boundaries. And so there were a couple of times when roles came down and they said, wait, wait, he was in the original show. Um, There's no reason for him to come in and audition because we're not, we're not booking anybody. Um, And then, I don't know, a year or so passed and this, this, I got an, I got a call from my agent. I remember the call and they said, oh, we got an audition for you down at Deep Space Nine. And I said, wait, you got to remember they, I can't take the job. They won't, they won't hire me. Why do I want to go in an audition when they find out I was in the series? They go, well, ah, don't worry about it. They probably won't even remember. And they didn't. And, you know, it was a small little role. Grady was only in it for a brief period of time. And I went down just as a character actor. You know, nobody made a big deal about it at the time. No, Jonathan Frakes. In fact, in fact, I remember that day really vividly because it wasn't day. It was night. And it was a television production company that was so far behind schedule that I got a call to go to work at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I didn't work till like 2 a.m. Wow. And Jonathan Frakes later, you know, came and apologized to me and goes, listen, I am sorry. I was so tired. I was a zombie when we were directing that scene. You know, and thank God it turned out the way it turned out. But, you know, they were, at, you know, as television programs can happen, when they get behind schedule, once in a while, the production manager just, just says, okay, we're going to pay the overtime. We got to go. And they worked these enormously ridiculous hours. And I remember doing the scene. If I remember correctly, I'm one of the only, I'm only one of, there weren't a lot of humans in Deep, Deep Space Nine, were there? There were a good amount, but in the episode that you were in, it took place in 2024 on Earth. So it was a little bit more contemporary. Yeah. The riots. Yeah, the Bell Riots. The Bell Riots, yes. And I know, and I just listen, by that time, I was a character actor and I've been I played nuts before. And this guy was, you know, this guy needed to be per- perceived as a real nutcase, you know. And I remember doing it and it was fun, but I didn't give it much, you know. I didn't make a big thing about it. It wasn't until I did Enterprise that the Star Trek people embraced the fact that, hey, we're using guys from the old shows. And, you know, Jeffrey Combs and um, and Johnny, Johnny Phillips. Uh, Ethan um, Phillips. He, well, yeah, Ethan. He, Johnny's he goes by Johnny. But, yeah, we played the Ferengis. Yeah, which is a great episode, too, by the way. I hadn't seen that one in so long, and I, I rewatched that one, and I was just like, oh, my God, because I love Ferengi episodes, and this one is a standout. Yeah, no, I had a blast doing I had a blast doing that. First of all, because of the makeup, and, uh, oh, who who was the, the lead? Who was the lead uh, Ferengi? Uh, Ari, not Ari. Oh, you talking about Armin Shimmerman? Armin, Armin, yes. I wore Armin's piece armin has a big head i've got a i've got a gigantic cranium and and so does armin and so you know um they they didn't want to make they didn't want to go to the trouble of molding you know brand new masks so because it is it's it was basically a mask piece there was you know my my face stuck through but most of it was prosthetic and i wore armin's um headpiece and still the makeup was so extensive 
that I went on, uh, you know, penalty turnaround. I got paid probably twice as much on that episode, you know, because if they if they hire in 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 Screen Actors Guild on productions, if they don't give you twelve hours off, they have to pay you a substantial penalty, like you know, nine hundred dollars or a thousand. Back then, it was eight hundred bucks, and they used to call it. Well, we're going to buy you a couch, Clint. We got to call you in in ten hours. We got to call you in. I know it's I know it's really late at night, but we're calling you in at eight o'clock in the morning, and we're going to buy you a couch. So I think they I think they 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 bought me three couches on that episode, which was really fun. And another thing about that about working on the Enterprise. First of all, uh, Ethan and, and you know and and Jeffrey, I know, and it was fun, and it was just being around them was a blast. Um, Doing the Ferengi language was a little funky, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we slugged, slogged through it and and got what they, you know, we gave them what they wanted. But Scott Bakula was, of course, the, the commander, you know, yep. the captain of the Enterprise, right? Yeah. Well, I had worked with him on a TV series called Gung Ho. They had, they had done... They, the, the movie Gung Ho had come out with Michael Keaton, and then they did a TV series that only lasted for 13 episodes. And they replayed – Michael Keaton didn't want to be, a ser- be in the series, obviously, but they hired Scott. And so Scott and I became friends working on Gung Ho, the series. And then although, although you know, we didn't have any scenes together in Enterprise – you know, he certainly popped down to the to the set when I was filming and we, you know, shot the ball a little bit and said hi and caught up. And he's a great dude. You know, Scott's a wonderful guy. That was a working on Enterprise was a wonderful experience, too. And by that point, then they were celebrating the fact that now they they were getting to hire little Baylock. They were getting to hire Clint Howard. <laughs> Bring him back to legacy then, actors. Yeah. Legacy actors, I guess, is now what they call it. You know, yeah. And not to correct you, but you actually did have a scene with Scott back. I think you had a few in that Enterprise one. And one of them I know because I was going to ask you because you actually got to punch Captain Archer as uh, as your Frankie character, Muke. I don't know if you remember that. Really? Yeah. Jesus. I'd have to go back and see the episode. Yeah, well, it's worth it. I okay. definitely recommend it. I don't recall. I recall Scott coming down and giving me a hug and, you know, us shooting the bull. I don't remember us actually digging in. Listen, let me. I, this is not an excuse, Matthew, but I'll tell you something. You know, there's so much makeup going on. And and when when that when that happens to an actor, and then they put false teeth in your mouth, you're you're you get a little myopic. You get a little frigging, you know, it's hard. That one thing working on the Grinch was, you know, a very interesting experience. And watching Jim Carrey invent this hilarious, wonderfully rich character. In all of that makeup and in all of that wardrobe was absolutely phenomenal because when you spend three or four hours in the makeup chair, spend another 45 minutes getting into your costume, and then they pop contact lenses in your eyes, and then they walk you to the set, the last thing you want to be is funny. Hmm. And yet Jim, friggin' hats off to him, man, because that I, I can speak from complete experience. When you got that makeup on, it ain't fun. And yet, you know, listen, you know, he had a job to do and he did it. I mean, you've worn makeup a lot throughout your career. You mentioned the Grinch, talking Star Trek. Uh, which one would you say was the most arduous to get in and out of? Well, the one dayers were hard. The one dayers stand out. I mean, the the Star Trek was 
was the first Star Trek that I really count because it's just a hairpiece, you know. We did the Who makeup so much. We got I got so used to it. I had this wonderful makeup guy, Christian Tinsley, who's gone ahead and had a wonderful career in the special effects world. Um, he was my makeup man. You know, each each actor on Star, each actor on um, uh, on the Grinch had their own makeup man, which is pretty phenomenal. There was you know thirty five makeup men on the set of the Grinch, um, and with Rick Baker leading the charge and his you know whole team. It was awesome, great experience. So that you know that became easy. Um, you know, I made a little horror movie called Ticks. And it was where the finally at the end of the, the the money thing is I get infested with these big giant ticks and a tick blows out the side of my face. And it's, you know, right before, right after I say, I'm infested. And for people that have found them, that found the movie, it's an enjoyable moment. But I'll tell you, that was a hard day because that was full. You know, it was one day I had a bladder. I had a blood bladder kind of molded into my face. So when it came time to do that effect, it was really, you know, there wasn't a uh, kind of acting stiff. So I would say that probably, that probably was the most detailed, you know. And also anytime, anytime they have to do a plaster cast mold of your head, the, the preparation when you have to go in two weeks before and literally they they wrap your face in plaster of paris and do a mold with this you know finally your eyes are covered you got two little nose holes and a little straw to breathe and that that's you know from a standpoint of claustrophobia which mm-hmm. i'm not overtly claustrophobic but i think anybody's a little claustrophobic mm-hmm. i mean you i couldn't get i couldn't wait to get out of that thing it's like when it's after it's set and then they take it off my instinct is to help them, you know, let's get this thing off faster. <laughs> yes. You know, and this one kind of reminds you too, uh, I didn't actually get a chance to ask you this when we talked about the Corbinite maneuver. Um, but, you know, here on Enterprise, this is the first time you're actually aboard a Starfleet ship. So I don't know if you recall this from back in your original series days as well, but did you have a chance to check out the bridge, if you recall, and did you sit in the captain's chair? Oh, well, yeah, I, I checked out the bridge. In fact, in fact, you know, the Howard family photo album is filled with many Polaroids of me on the deck standing there. There was an orange railing. There's a yep. famous shot of me kind of standing in the orange railing. And I believe that for whatever reason, I had an inversion. I didn't want to sit in the captain's chair. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I looked at it. I saw it. I saw all the dials. You know, I was I was mesmerized. Listen, the fun thing about show business is, you know, you see the set and you've got like these control panels where the where you see the lights can come on. And then if you just run around back, you can see the guts of it. You can see how it how it gets done. You can see that there's electrician there wiring it and stuff. So, you know, being in on the being in on the tricks uh, as a child and as an adult is is big fun for me i mean i you know i i enjoy it. it's one great thing about show business is when you're inside when you're when you're inside the magic trick it's a blast so you're telling me scotty isn't back there actually in a warp core working on engineering no you're blowing no. my mind clint this is oh my god no no and sick bay eh, you know nobody <laughs> wants to get sick at sick bay <laughs> 
Hey everybody, we'll get right back to the interview in one second, but I wanted to remind you all to check out Trek Untold over at Patreon. Patreon is the best way to directly support creators of things you like through a monthly subscription of an amount that you can choose. Trek Untold has a few different tiers already with different benefits, ranging from early access to episodes, the ability to ask a future guest questions, exclusive merchandise, and other bonuses that I'd love to offer, but first I need to grow that Patreon community to do that. Trek Untold has been around since mid-2020 and has grown a ton since then, thanks to listeners and viewers like you. Through a platform like Patreon, you can help me keep improving the quality of each episode and keep bringing you new interviews with folks that make the Star Trek universe what it is. If this community can grow more over on Patreon, I can offer new perks like watch parties, exclusive Trek Untold episodes, being able to directly interact with guests, and other things, but in order to do that, I need to know my audience wants these things. The best way to tell me what you want is by supporting us on Patreon, so please, Check us out at patreon.com slash trekuntold today and become a bigger part of the Trek Untold family. And now, back to the interview. So Clint, as I'm sure you are already aware, you are in a very special club of folks who did the original series and then did the 90s, early 2000s series. But you're also in an even smaller club, which I think you might just be by yourself in, in the fact that you did the original series and Discovery in this modern era of Star Trek. And I got to tell you, watching it, when I was watching Discovery, I saw you pop up. I, I marked out. So we call it progressing. I flipped out. I was like, oh, my God, they got Clint Howard. That is so cool. Uh, I got to ask, you know, again, in this case, they know who you are, I'm sure, by now. Right. Did they call you in because they wanted Clint Howard back on Star Trek? Or was this kind of just a, an audition for something that maybe would pan out? Oh, no, no. By this point, I'm not really auditioning for Star Trek. And, and I'll tell you what, Akiba Goldsman, who I've known for a long time, and Akiba uh, wrote A Beautiful Mind. For my brother and and also wrote Cinderella Man, you know, two movies that I was involved in. And in fact, the first time I really met Akiba in person, it was at my niece's wedding, Bryce. When Bryce got married, God way no, you know, a long time ago now. Um, Akiba and I were there and we shared this moment that it was an unforgettable moment of this absurd situation that we both witnessed and we laughed about. Um, but you know, Akiva, I always consider Akiva a really good dude. And, 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 you know, he, he reached out, he was the showrunner for discovery and he reached out to me and he said, I have a really interesting idea and I really, would you, would you be willing to do it? And he pitched it to me and I said, of course, of course, listen, I'm an actor, I'm a character actor. And by this point, listen, I was in the William Shatner roast on Comedy Central. Yep. You know, I've completely bought into the celebration of it all and not guarding some sort of weird, you know, aversion to it. So anyway, it was Akiva that asked me to do it. And I tell you, I hope I don't get in trouble when I say this, but, you know, that that episode of Discovery, um, what what we what you guys ended up seeing on screen is not what we shot. Really, the whole reason the whole reason why Akiva asked me to come on and play that creepy Orion character is they had written a Tranya reference into that <laughs> into that scene, and it was if you remember the episode, you know the the young ensign was was got high got intoxicated by the volcanic vapors yep. that i was breathing it was in a kind of a seedy nightclub scene and i was whiffing i was whiffing these vapors 
And the young infant, she takes a whiff of these vapors and sort of passes out. And she comes to, and in the script, she came to and she said, what happened? I'm parched. And I instantly, this creepy Orion character, after hearing that this, this person is parched, I reach back and I hold I hold a glass of, 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 of a beverage up to her and I go, Tranya. <laughs> and you know, so that that was the that was what it was all about. It was the Tranya reference. And I it was funny. We did it. I thought we nailed it. And for whatever reason, the producers did not want to make that cross-reference. They thought it didn't work. They didn't, maybe it would spoil the atmosphere of the scene. And which is, you know, the producer's choice. Actors don't have final cut. So they eliminated it. But, you know, anyway, there's, you know, and and listen, I, I'm not going to go into any more details except to say I'm not done being in Star Trek. Good. That's what I want to hear. Because I was curious, you know, we got to get you in lower deck somehow. I don't, I don't know if anybody's talked to you. And I know if you anybody has, you can't say anything because we want to keep our kneecaps intact. But yes. I mean, yeah, I would love to see you show up again in Lower Decks or well, something all else. All different worlds, you know, they all, all sorts of worlds can spin around. The Star Trek, I love the Star Trek universe. I I was really, really impressed with what J.J. did making that movie. That When they retooled Star Trek, you know, and a guy named, uh, what was his, the, the guy that played young Captain Kirk when he was a boy, Jimmy Bennett. I had done a movie with Jimmy Bennett called um, uh, Alabama Moon. And Jimmy had told me that he had played young Captain Kirk driving a Corvette. Yeah. <laughs> he played like a 10 year old boy driving a Corvette. And I saw the movie. And I, you know, whenever I know people that are in movies, I, I find it fascinating and interesting and I root for him. But I just thought that JJ did a great job with that movie. And, you know, um, you know, I just enjoy it, man. And listen, it's entertainment. It's thought provoking entertainment. And, and, you know, it's not mindless. That's one thing about, you know, one thing there, there's different kinds of entertainment. There is such a thing as positive, mindless entertainment. And then there's thought provoking entertainment. And I appreciate thought provoking entertainment, you know, so, and, and the Star Trek people do it. It's just so cool to see that you have like an appreciation for for what Star Trek is and the fandom itself. It's uh, it's very cool to see. It's not just surprising to me, but I have to take my hat off to the producers and the first the inventor and then the producers and the all the technical people that manufacture it. I know on Discovery, I mean, it was being shot like a big movie. Yeah, the yeah, craftsmanship. The craftsmanship on that on that project was amazing. And the Picard show, you know, I haven't seen all of it, but it was an amazing effort. And then the thought-provoking nature of it, you know, I think Star Trek was always designed to be thought-provoking. I think Gene Roddenberry, that was their whole desire, was to to make people think. And, you know, in different ways, the 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 thoughts of the original series certainly different than the thoughts of the work that they're doing now. You know, I, listen, I, I think now the Star Trek people, as well as the Star Wars people, they get pretty heavy about it. They get, it's pretty heady, heavy stuff. 
And the one thing about the original series, and I think people really enjoy, is that it wasn't that heady and heavy. It was fun. It wasn't mindless. You know, I, I still, when I catch, I'll catch an old episode and watch Bill play Captain Kirk and Leonard Nimoy, what he did with Spock, you know, and I take my hats off to them because they were ground floor. Yeah, They were, that was at the beginning. I mean, you got to realize when I worked on Star Trek, they were still figuring out the Vulcan salute and, and, and they were still, you know, they, they didn't have all the, 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 they didn't have the Star Trek universe yet. You know, it was just building. It's one amazing thing about George Lucas. I know this is Trek, but, you know, listen, George is George. With the invention of Star Wars, with Larry Kasdan working as a collaborator with George, he sat down and concocted this giant Bible that has mushroomed and grown into this unbelievable thing. I mean, you know, it's amazing. I mean, look, uh, just if you look at both franchises, I certainly respect both. I know that there's a rivalry between the, the, the different factions. Uh, and you know, that's fine. I guess if people want to have a rivalry, they can have a rivalry. I think there's, there's room in the universe for both Star Trek and Star Wars. Absolutely. And I'm one of those folks who uh, dares to cross the line between both. <laughs> <laughs> so, Clint, uh, you know, I got a few last questions here before we wrap this interview up here. And this is I'm going to call it my lightning round, even though any guest I've done this before usually hates it. because They're like, these are not lightning fast questions, but that's the idea. Uh, Would you like me to make them lightning fast answers? Let's see if you can. That'll be that'll be a curious thing to see if you can do that. Um, okay. So, Clint, let's kick things off here with the first question. Best day on a set and worst day on a set. Best day on the set was working with Bob Gibson in an episode of Gentle Ben, where, you know, I was a big baseball fan as a kid. And when they saw, when they signed Bob Gibson to be in an episode of Gentle Ben and I got to meet with him and work with him, that it, it can't get any better than that. And the worst day on a, on a set, I'm not going to name the show, but the, 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 the day that I found out the check bounced. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it was a that was a piss poor day in my life. I work all day, work hard all day, give them an honest day's work, and they stiffed me. That's pretty damn bad. As bad as it can get. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have worked with a ton of actors across the spectrum. Who would you say was the most down to earth? And who, without getting you in trouble, would you say would have been the most pretentious actor to work with? Nina Foch was a pretentious actress in my mind. Uh, my dad had to teach me about what happens when people upstage people. Mm. Nina Foch was an old Broadway character actress, and she may have been a very nice lady. But, you know, when dad had to teach me about about wa- watching somebody upstage somebody, I would I would put that into the category of, of being kind of pretentious. Um, oh, there's been a lot of down to earth actors. Jack Elam was extremely down to earth. He was an old character actor in the 60s and the 70s. He was beautiful. I've worked with dozens and dozens and dozens of down-to-earth actors. How about the most challenging role that you ever played that ended up becoming the most rewarding? Well, I played the lead in a a version of The Red Pony uh, starring Henry Fonda, Maureen O'Hara, and myself, where I played Jody. I played the lead boy in The Red Pony. And that was... 
a, a big chunk of work for me to do. And at the end of the day, I was really, I was really satisfied with my performance. And, you know, I felt like I gave them my very best. Now, normally I ask this next question uh, as what's the best piece of advice you ever received from somebody that you think about today, but in honor of the boys, New York times bestseller, hooray. Uh, I want to kind of direct this more towards what's the best piece of advice either of your parents gave you and what's the best piece of advice your brother ever gave you? Well, my parents and with dad being kind of my acting mentor, it sort of landed more with him. It was the preparation, the simple preparation as an actor to really listen, to really listen to your other acting colleagues. Um, you know, you don't wait for your cues. Don't think about your cues, but really, really listen and really look, lock in on somebody's eyes. Locking in on somebody's eyes, I think, is is really important. Best piece of advice my brother ever gave me, let the director be the director and you be the actor. That's a smart piece of advice right there. <laughs> yeah. You've been working in Hollywood for decades, ever since you were a little itty bitty Clint all the way to today where you're grown up adult Clint. What would you like to be the legacy of Clint Howard? All of those things. All of the, the fact of my longevity and the fact that, you know, I was doing good, solid work when I was five and six years old and doing good, solid work as a senior citizen, you know, and, and, and that I make a good, you know, I, I try my best. And I give people a full day's work. I tell this to a lot of people. You know, anybody can act at eight o'clock in the morning. Anybody who, who who wakes up, jumps in the shower, gets cleaned up, goes down to the set, stands around. And so you're going to be really sharp in the morning, but you got to be good after 13 or 14 hours. Mm-hmm. You got to be good after, you know, seven or eight cups of bad coffee and a, a horrible second meal at, at 10 o'clock at night. And then the assistant director is saying, chop, 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 time to go. We got to do this shot. You got to say that, you know, I mean, listen, it, it, you know, it's almost the bane of my existence as an actor is a lot of times some of the most difficult work happens under really difficult circumstances. And, but, you know, we're professionals. We have to act, you know, we have to be able to hit a baseball if it's raining or not. We have to be able to play. We have to be able to do our job if the environment is good or if the environment is bad. So listen, I, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, people will say, by God, Clint was good at that. And he ended up entertaining us. And last thing for today, Clint, what's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Just the satisfaction of being a part of the universe. The, 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 the idea that my goodness, God saw to it that I could play a little part in history. You know, that, that I don't know, you know, right place, right time. And, 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 you know, given that opportunity and it gets celebrated. And also the fact that I pulled my head out of my butt years ago and realized that it was something to celebrate and nothing and not something to shy away from. Yeah. I'm glad I had that revelation in my head. Well, I'm glad you did too, because that meant I got a chance to talk to you about all the Star Trek stuff. So uh, yeah, that's, that's so awesome. And I legitimately do get to uh, hope I meet you at some point at a convention somewhere, somehow. We got to find a way to get you onto New York, Clint. Uh, that, that's my goal here for this interview. Find a way to come to New York so I can get a picture with you person to person. Okay. Well, we'll have my peeps talk to your peeps. Of course, of course. Yeah, we'll do lunch. We'll do lunch. Uh, (laughs) 
But one last time, folks, everybody, uh, Clint and Ron's book, The Boys, check it out. I'm going to have links to it in my show notes below. It's a do not miss book. Highly recommend it. Uh, I loved every minute of it. And again, thank you for being so honest and open about your life experiences. Same with your brother as well. Just reading all the stories getting to know more about you guys. Uh, it wasn't just that I'm reading a story about Hollywood luminaries, but more so that it's two people, two human beings and seeing the ups and downs and the journey you guys went through. Um, so the book is awesome. Well, thank you, Matthew, and I appreciate it. You were a really good interviewer. Oh, thank you, you so much. Let, let me let me let me say one more thing. Sure, you, you were a really good interviewer, especially for a Trekkie, because sometimes Trekkies, when they do interviews, they geek out, and you didn't geek out much. Not publicly, yeah. No, inside, inside, <laughs> inside like that tick that exploded out of your face. But for this interview, I'm trying to keep it cool here. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, be well, and hopefully our paths will cross. I hope so. And as uh, to quote six-year-old Clint Howard, I hope you've relished this interview as much as I. (laughs) Now I geeked out. There we go. Be well. That's it for this week's show. Thanks again for checking out Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please follow Trek Untold on social media, where you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok, among others, all at Trek Untold. Don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube for the video versions of this show at youtube.com slash at Trek Untold. And subscribe to us on whatever platform you're listening to the audio version on. We always appreciate likes, shares, comments, thumbs up, ratings, and reviews, and whatever you can do to help spread the word about this podcast and inform other Trekkies about why they need to check this show out. If you're able to financially support this show, visit patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn about the different ways you can contribute to keeping this show going full speed ahead. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.